Luke chapter 18, starting now at verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now we read this question that this man asked Jesus, and we just think maybe it came out of the blue. But in a sense, there's been a flow to Luke's gospel, and we're coming to one of the culminations of this flow in Luke's gospel, because now Jesus is on his approach to Jerusalem. Before we leave Luke chapter 18 tonight, we're going to see Jesus in the city of Jericho. And Jericho was one of the last stops that someone would make when they were on their way from Galilee to Jerusalem. So close to the finish of Jesus' final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, because it was at this visit to Jerusalem that the Passover would be held and that Jesus would be crucified and that he would rise from the dead, a certain man, verse 18 tells us, a certain ruler came to him. Now commonly, we in sort of preacher world, Bible study world, we call this man the rich young ruler. Right here, Luke tells us he was a ruler, He also tells us a little bit later that he was rich, and the Gospel of Mark tells us, excuse me, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 23, tells us that he was young. And when he came to Jesus, he simply addressed him with this title. Did you notice this? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you and I hear that phrase, good teacher, and think, well, okay, fine. He's saying, Jesus, you're a good teacher. No big deal. What I need to impress upon you is that that was, in the culture and in the thinking of that time, a very heavy title to give Jesus. Because they had this idea that Jesus is going to allude to just in the following verse, that no one is good but God alone. Matter of fact, in the rabbinic literature of that time, there's no record of anybody coming up to a rabbi and calling him good teacher. It was something they avoided, reserving it just for God. So... Either this man who approached Jesus was extremely impressed by Jesus. Wow, I think you're amazing, Jesus. And so I'm going to give you this great title. Or this might have been a bit of flattery. It might have been a little bit over-the-top flattery. Let's go on now. He asked in verse 18, What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want eternal life. I want it in the life I live right now, but I also want it in the life to come. What do I have to do so that I would have eternal life? Now notice as Jesus reply in verse 19. He says this. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. I think Jesus intended to shake the man up just a little bit with this. Friend, you call me good. Do you really know what you're saying? Or are you just throwing words out into the air unthinkingly? Now, of course, Jesus is God. It was appropriate to call him good teacher. If anybody could actually receive that title unto himself, it would be Jesus. Yet Jesus didn't want to receive the title from the man in an unthinking way. And so he asked for this clarification. Now, notice here, Jesus is going to follow up on this verse 20 where Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now this is fascinating. Jesus addresses this man, again, whom we know as the rich young ruler. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus says, you know the commandments. And then Jesus rattles off a few of the commandments. Did you notice the commandments that Jesus listed? He said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Now, this is what I want you to understand. Jesus knew that this man knew the commandments of God. By the way, you wonder how many people today know the commandments. Now, If you were to ask somebody in our present day and age to actually list the Ten Commandments, that would be a very interesting thing to do out on the streets of Santa Barbara, wouldn't it? Nevertheless, if you were to ask people the principles behind the Ten Commandments, just about everybody would immediately understand what you're talking about. Is it wrong to lie and steal? Yes, it's wrong to lie and steal. Is it wrong to kill people? Yes, it's wrong to kill people. Is it wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse? Yes, it's wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse. Because these commandments, even though people can't articulate them in the form of the Ten Commandments, which is genuinely a loss in our society today, do they not still know them by intuition? It is written upon their hearts. And Jesus could appeal to this in this man. Now, by the way, what I find interesting is even though there are people today, either through instruction or intuition, they know the commandments of God... I find it shocking how few people ask the same question that this rich young ruler asked. That's what I want to see today more. That's what I want to pray. That's what I pray for. I pray for more people who will simply ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I care about heaven and hell. I I I care about my life that I live right now. At least this man had an awakened spiritual interest. So Jesus said, okay, well, look, let's talk about this. He says, you got to do this. You gotta, now, I want you to notice something. Every commandment that Jesus called the man towards was a commandment having to do with how we treat our fellow human being. It's often said that the Ten Commandments can be divided into what's often called the two tables of the law. The first table of law has to do with our actions towards God. Uh, The actions towards God include, you know, no idolatry. You can't take the name of the Lord in vain, etc., etc. Then the other table of law has to do with our actions towards man. I want you to notice the commandments Jesus quoted had all to do with how we treat our fellow man. And so what did the man reply? You saw it right there in verse 21. Did you see his reply? All these things I have kept from my youth. Every one of these things. Now, by the way, I find it fascinating that when he says all these things I have kept from my youth, what he probably means by that is from the time I had my bar mitzvah, from the time that I was officially declared no longer a youth but now an adult, which happened at 13 years of age in that culture and in Jewish culture today, ever since then I have kept all these things. Now, I have often wondered if Jesus didn't laugh right then when the guy said that. But I don't think Jesus laughed at all. Because I believe this man genuinely believed that he had kept all the commandments. You have to understand that there is a tendency in the human heart to whenever we see a commandment of God, we will shape it and define it into something much more easy to be kept. And that's what the Jewish people did in Jesus' day. But not only then, it's universal to humanity. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had to make it clear. 
that when God says, do not murder, he is not only concerned about the action of murder, he's also concerned about the heart of murder. When God says, do not commit adultery, he's not only concerned about the act of adultery, but he's also considered, uh, uh, concerned with the heart of adultery. Now, this man may have been, I'm saying, I never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never, it's hard to believe he could say he never lied. But, but again, again, there's way to make excuses around these things. Anyway, he was confident in this idea that he had kept the law from his youth. Now notice this, verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, stop, I want you to stop right there. Notice that phrase. So when Jesus heard these things. In other words, what Jesus said was specific to this man. He didn't say it to all his disciples. He spoke to this man in light of what that man had just said. So start again at verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I have to say, I like one thing that the gospel of Mark adds to this account. Mark chapter 10 verse 21 says this. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. Isn't that remarkable? When the man said those words, all these things I have kept from my youth, Jesus looked at him. I'm sure with some pain in his heart, and that's why I can confidently say that Jesus wasn't laughing. He looked at him with love. And I'm sure part of what he said in his heart and the love in his heart said this, you poor lost man. You're a ruler. You have some position of authority. You're a magistrate of some kind. You're rich. You're young. What else do you have? I mean, this is wonderful. You got everything. And at least by every human observation, you're holy. You seem to have it all. Yet deep in your heart, you know that you lack. You don't have it. That question drove him to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he said, you still lack one thing. The man thought he had everything, but he didn't have it. Verse 22, so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Do you understand what Jesus told the man to do? You got it all, mister. Sell some of it. Now, he didn't tell him to sell some of his possessions. He told him to get rid of it all. But you can keep your youth. You can keep your position as a ruler. I'm not asking you to give up everything in your life, but the material things, I want you to give them up, sell all that you have, and you come follow me. Give your things to the poor. I want you to notice something very fascinating about this. Jesus did not tell the man to destroy his material possessions. No, take your material possessions and use them for the good of somebody else. It was important that he get rid of those material possessions for himself because those material possessions for him were an idol. They were a violation of the first tablet of the law. He worshiped material things more than he worshiped God. So Jesus says, get rid of them. 
Secondly, he says, he says, give them to the poor. Because there's something lacking in the way that you love other people. You give it unto them. Just don't get rid of it. It wouldn't have been just the same if the man would have made a great big pile out of his money and burned it. No. Take that money and give it to the poor. So he asked him to do this. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This call for this man to forsake everything and to follow Jesus is a call to put God first in all things. That same call is on my life and on your life. I'm not trying to say for a moment that God wants you to sell everything that you have to give it to the poor and live a penniless life for his glory. Although, surely that's the call of God for somebody in this world. But I want you to notice, Jesus did not say this universally to his disciples. He didn't say it to the multitude. He said it to this one particular man. Because this one particular man needed to hear it. But I wonder, what would Jesus say to me about some area of my life where I need to put Jesus first and where I'm being an idolater because something else is put in front of Jesus? Jesus may not say to you exactly what he said to the rich young ruler, but he has something to say to you and to say to me about where Jesus is and if Jesus is first in our life. I remember when I was a very young Christian, late 1970s, uh, maybe even the early 1980s. Do you remember Reverend Jerry Falwell? The, these were the days of his big you know, publicity and, and this. And I, I remember Jerry Falwell on the television, and he had kind of this southern preacher kind of way that always seemed weird to me as a Southern California kid. But anyway, Jerry Falwell had his thing. And I remember, for some reason, this stuck in my mind. He was giving away on his radio program, he was giving away... Uh, Jesus first lapel pins. Does anybody remember Jesus first lapel pins? Did anybody ever have a Jesus first lapel pin? Anybody in this room? Okay, I guess not. Uh, For some reason, it stuck in my mind. He said, this is the most popular lapel pin in America. I don't know how you would measure such a thing. But for some reason, that idea of just those two words and little cross and little design, Jesus first. Isn't that a wonderful sentiment? Is that a wonderful thing to be reminded of every day? Look, I never got the lapel pin, but I hope it's written in my life in somewhere more significant than a lapel pin to say Jesus first. That's exactly what Jesus challenged this man to. And I think that we can make two mistakes here. The first mistake is to think what Jesus said to this man applies to everybody in every detail. No, he said it to this one rich man for whom his riches were clearly an obstacle. No, no, no. You see, instead, many rich people can do more good in this world by continuing to make money and to do good for others. So the first mistake is to say, oh, what Jesus said here, it applies to everyone. You know what the second mistake is you can make? To think that this applies to no one. And certainly there are some people, there's somebody that this applies to. I'll tell you, one notable man in the history of the church, Francis of Assisi. He was the son of a wealthy merchant, and he had a pretty good living, you know, coming from a wealthy family, and he was a young man of some means. He was so struck by this verse and the call of God on his life that he sold everything that he had, including his clothes down to his underwear, and he gave it away to the poor, and he said, I'm just going to follow Jesus and trust him by faith. 
That's a radical way to live, is it not? Now, verse 23. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. You know, the other Gospels note that he went away. That's in Matthew and Mark. But Luke noticed his expression. He went away very sorrowful. Why? Because he was very rich. Isn't those two interesting uses of the word very there? Isn't that a strange but a very poignant combination? Very sorrowful, very rich. And couldn't that be written across many lives in our world today? In our own community. Couldn't that be written over the homes? On the license plates of many people? Let me just make a new license plate frame. Very sorrowful, very rich. (laughs) Because let me tell you, it would apply. No, wait a minute. You've got everything. You're rich. You're young. And it's funny, we live in a culture today that idolizes youth even more than riches. You're rich, you're wrong, you're a ruler. You have all these things together. You've got it all. But he had nothing. Very rich, very sorrowful. Notice what a powerful thing that is. And friends, this principle remains. God may challenge an individual and require them to give something up for his kingdom that he perfectly allows somebody else. If God speaks to your life and he says to you, you give this up for my kingdom. Don't say, well, you didn't ask Pastor David to give it up. Honestly, could this rich young ruler say, hey, Jesus, you didn't tell Peter to give everything up. Hey, hey, Jesus, you you didn't tell this other guy, Joseph of Arimathea is your follower. You didn't tell him to give everything up. What about this guy? What about that guy? No, 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 no. If God tells me to give something up for the sake of his kingdom, it does me no good to say, well, you didn't tell them to give it up. He may do that. And friends, I just think of this poor, rich, young man. When he heard Jesus' radical call to discipleship, this is what he said. He said, I can't do that. I can't make that sacrifice. I will forfeit eternal life and go to hell. He was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. But nobody in this room can say he was smart. Because the smart thing to do would have been to give it all up for Jesus. Especially in light of Jesus' following words. Look at here, starting at verse 24. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I'm fascinated by this. It doesn't say this. The Bible that many preachers and leaders write with their lives today would be this. Verse 24, and when Jesus saw that he went away, he said, no, no, wait, just kidding. You don't have to give it all up. Let let me soften the demands of discipleship in some way. Jesus didn't say that. You don't want it? Go. Leave. Find your own place, your own destiny. But then Jesus said in verse 24, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, I just want to make a very brief point. Riches are an obstacle to the kingdom of God. 
They are not an insurmountable obstacle, as Jesus will just explain. But riches are an obstacle to the kingdom of God. Now, I know what virtually everybody in the... I can read your minds, because I can read my own mind, and I think you're just like me. This is, this is what the mind among us here this evening says. Thank heavens I'm not rich. I hope some rich people get to hear this. Right? Isn't that our reaction? Yes. Oh, boy. I'm in the clear on this one because I'm not rich. And I know some rich people, but no, no, I'm, I'm in the clear. Isn't that funny? That virtually no one thinks of themselves as rich. But can I challenge myself, and I'll challenge you right along with this. By the standard of living that everybody lived in in Jesus' day, every one of us is fabulously wealthy. Think of the contraption that you drove to our church meeting here tonight with. Could you imagine such a thing in the ancient world? Think of all the conveniences that you will enjoy just between now and the time you go to bed this evening. Every one of us, relatively speaking, is fabulously wealthy. And riches and materialism is a real obstacle to each and every one of us for the kingdom of God. So much so that Jesus says this. Look at it in verse 25. He says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now look, I know people try to give explanations and say, Well, there was a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye of a needle. And a camel could go through, but it had to get down on its knees and take all the packs... You know what? As far as I know from the archaeologists, there was no gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. There just was none. This is one of those preacher stories. Preacher loves to say, but it's just not true. And, and you know, oh, it could have been this, it could have been that. No, Jesus is just using a figure of speech. He's just using of something to say, look, it, it, it's difficult. Matter of fact, I find it fascinating to read that in the rabbinic literature of that time, they commonly use the figure of an elephant through the eye of a needle for something impossible. But Jesus didn't say elephant. What did he say? Camel. Well, okay, it's not like putting a camel through the eye of a needle is is easy. But you have to admit, it is smaller than an elephant. (laughs) Anyway, Jesus said this. It's easier for a camel to go... What he's telling you and I is, don't kid yourself. Wealth is an obstacle to the kingdom of God. Now, notice this. He's going to tell us it's not an insurmountable obstacle. Verse 26. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Friends, it is possible for the rich man to be saved. God's grace is big enough to cover the rich and the poor. And so we have examples of men like Zacchaeus, of Joseph of Arimathea, of Barnabas. Those are just New Testament examples. The Old Testament is filled with godly men who were very wealthy at some time or another. You see, these were all men who were able to put God first and not their riches. And so this is what's very important for us to understand is that Jesus has to be first. And anything that you own, anything that you make, you must see as belonging to Jesus and at his service. You are a steward of God's resources that he gives you. I think if you keep that mentality 
and a generous heart, God loves to bestow material things on people who allow them to be channels in their life and give them unto others. Now, verse 28. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and have followed you. Don't you love that from Peter? Ooh, 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 Jesus, Jesus. Where, where that rich young ruler failed, we succeeded. Aren't we wonderful? Yes, yes, Jesus, look at me, look at me. Continue on now, verse 29. So he said to them, now he's speaking to the disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many more, many times more in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, look, there is no one who gives up anything for God who will not be rewarded. Now, it's true, the 12 apostles, or if you want to say the 11 apostles, we'll leave Judas out of this for obvious reasons. But just to say generically, the 12 apostles, they have their special reward. They have a special place in God's redemptive plan. And thank God for it. So they have a special, unique reward. But there's a sense in which this reward extends to everybody who gives up anything for God. There will be universal honor for every person who makes a sacrifice for Jesus' sake. And whatever has been given up for him will be returned many times over. Notice those words in verse 30. In this present age and in the age to come eternal life. God will give you many times more in this age and in the age to come. Now, it would be wrong to take this on a strictly material level. As if giving unto God was sort of a, you know, I don't know, strange investment scheme. Where, you know, I know God will give me more money back and this. Listen, listen. The problem with taking this in a strictly literal way, notice what he says here many times more. Um, What did he say about giving up there? Verse 29, there is not one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children. Well, I I don't know how many more wives God is expecting to give you or children. He's speaking in this metaphorical sense, but it's real. In now and in the age to come. But friends, this principle stands and it stands very strongly. God will not be in debt to anybody. When we give unto the Lord, he returns unto us. He just does. And sometimes the reward is material. I I don't know any generous people with their resources who regret it. I I mean, maybe they're out there, but I don't know them. Everybody I've ever heard that's really been determined to be generous with their resources to the Lord, they know God has honored them in their life. I know that. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, we don't do it merely for a material reward, but also for the kind of reward that we get in the age to come. So it is impossible for us to give more to God than he will give back to us. Verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, 
Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they did not understand, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. It was not a surprise to the disciples that they were going to Jerusalem. They could read the road signs. They knew where they were going. So it was not a surprise that they were going to Jerusalem. But it was a surprise to what Jesus said later on in verse 31. All things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. You know, the prophets wrote some things about the Son of Man's glorification and enthronement and triumph. But they also wrote things about his humiliation and suffering. And when Jesus says all things that are written of the Son of Man will be accomplished, he specially has in his mind the things of his suffering and his humiliation. And that's why he says in verse 32, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. Guys, we're going to Jerusalem. But I'm going to be mocked insulted, spit upon, and killed there. Now, I'm just going to mention this briefly because later on in Luke, we're going to develop this more strongly. This would have been a shock to the disciples had they understood it. Because so fixed in their mind was that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to take over. To be enthroned as king. It's as if he's running a successful political campaign. And it's going to be election day. And he says, hey guys, election day is coming up and I'm going to die. What? It seems so contradictory to them. But notice what he said would happen. Verse 22. I'm going to be delivered. In other words, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be mocked and insulted and spit upon. Verse 32. Verse 33, they're going to scourge me. Verse 33, they're going to kill me. This is a picture of great suffering. I'm going to suffer from the disloyalty of my friends. I'm going to suffer from injustice. I'm going to suffer from the deliberate insults and humiliation. I'm going to suffer from physical pain. I'm going to suffer from great humiliation and degradation. All those things put together. And by the way, when Jesus says all these things, can we understand, he's not in charge of any of it. He knows this is going to happen, but it's not something he can engineer. He knows this is what God's plan is for him. But notice what he says. Do not miss this in verse 33. Do you see what he says there at the end of verse 33? He says, and the third day he will rise again. Yes, I'm going to be humiliated. Yes, they're literally going to spit in my face. But I will rise again. Verse 35. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now this is beautiful. Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Jericho is one of the last stops on the way to Jerusalem. And as he's in Jericho, what happens there? A blind man 
One of the other gospels, I think Mark tells us his name is Bartimaeus. So this guy is known to us in the Bible as blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus starts screaming out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want you to notice something. He couldn't see Jesus, could he? But you know what he could do? He could hear. So notice what it says in verse 36. Hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. There may be a lot that you can't do to seek Jesus, but whatever you can do to seek him, seek him. If you can't seek him with your eyes, then seek him with your ears. If you can't seek him with your ears, seek him with your smell. Whatever you can do, seek after Jesus. That's what blind Bartimaeus did. And he cried out, verse 39, he cried out all the more. He sees this multitude, or he doesn't see them. He hears the multitude passing by. And he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. There's a very interesting thing. In verse 38, it says he cried out. You see that? William Barclay says that that is an ordinary loud shout to attract attention. But in verse 39, it says that he cried out all the more. What I'm trying to get at is in verse 39 where it says he cried out all the more, it's a completely different Greek word. And that different Greek word, William Barclay defines it like this. It is the instinctive cry of ungovernable emotion, a scream, almost an animal cry. I love this. <laughs> he starts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody says, shut up, man. Don't bother Jesus. What does he do when they tell him to shut up? He screams out all the more. Try to shut me up when I'm seeking Jesus? No, I'm going to yell for him all the more. And he starts screaming in what one commentator called an animal cry, calling out after Jesus. Verse 40. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? Isn't that a strange question? The procession is moving through the city of Jericho. And Jesus says, stop, stop, stop. Crazy man is calling out for me. He goes over to him. Or wait, let's look at the text again. Did he come to Jesus? No, no, no. That's what it says there, verse 40. So Jesus stood still. He stopped. I'm going to stop for the sake of this one man. Bring this man to me. Bring crazy blind Bartimaeus out to me. They brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looks at the man. He can't look back. He's blind, but he knows that he's in front of Jesus, and he hears the words of Jesus say, what do you want me to do for you? You might think that that's the stupidest question in the world. You might think that Bartimaeus would have said, "Uh, duh, Jesus, I'm blind. Can't you tell? You might think that there's no purpose in that question. I want you to understand, everything Jesus did had a purpose. Do you know why he said that? Because it is so important and so good for us merely to vocalize what we want from God. Does he know what we want from him? Yes. But sometimes we don't know what we want and what we need from God. And so he said, tell me, I want to know, what do you want me to do for you? And so he says, look out in, in the middle of verse 41, Lord, that I may receive my sight. He called Jesus Lord. He wanted to receive his sight. Then look at it, continuing on. He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said, said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. 
Jesus granted the man's request and he healed him right then and there. And what did he tell him? He said, your faith has made you well. Let's close with this. What was the faith of blind Bartimaeus like? I mean, it was pretty good faith, wasn't it? It was faith that made him well. So what was his faith like? First of all, it was faith that wanted Jesus, number one. Number two, it was faith that knew who Jesus was. He said, son of David, and he called him Lord. He knew who Jesus was. Number three, it was faith that knew what he deserved from Jesus, and therefore he asked for mercy. I need mercy from you, Jesus. It was faith that could tell Jesus what it wanted. What would you say to Jesus if he came to you tonight? What do you want me to do for you? And then it was faith that received what Jesus offered. Most of all, it was faith that wouldn't shut up. When people told him to be quiet, he said, no, I need Jesus. I won't stop seeking Jesus. Friend, I love that way it closes there in verse 43. He received his sight and he followed him glorifying God. He didn't just receive the healing. He began to follow Jesus. There was a group of people following Jesus from Jericho to Jerusalem now. This man became part of the group. He wasn't just receiving. He became a follower. That's what Jesus wants for everybody who receives something good from him. Not only to be a receiver of something good, but to be a follower after that. But can I bring it around to the beginning now? What is it that often is an obstacle to our following Jesus? It's the love of money, material things. What a great little reminder as we come into this lack of week before Christmas. That we should not let the love of money or over-focus upon material things corrupt us or the people around us, but to put Jesus first. Father, that's our prayer. Would you help us to do that? We know, Lord, especially like in this last week before Christmas, sometimes there's almost a panic, a a frantic rush. And this this wild overemphasis upon money and material things. Jesus, we don't need it only this week. We need it every week. But we pray especially that you would help us to put you first. And I pray, God, for anyone here to whom tonight you're speaking in a special way about what they must give up to fulfill your command, that you'd help them to do that and to bring glory to Jesus, our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.